I'm Tessa Hulse, editor of The Project Room. For this month's podcast, I sat down with Sarah Smith and Micah Stanowski of Sawhorse Revolution, a Seattle nonprofit that teaches carpentry skills to high school youth. With an emphasis on projects that serve their communities, Sawhorse has constructed everything from tree houses to garden beds. Our conversation tackles the idea of monument in its most literal sense, but also explores the ways in which students create their own legacy of empowerment and engagement. In addition to their educational programs, Sawhorse Revolution produces a literary journal, Frame. In conjunction with the release of this podcast, we are publishing This Is Your Arm, an essay about intention, focus, and drywall screws that was first featured in Frame. Be sure to head over to Off Paper to give it a read, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, I'm sitting down today with Micah and Sarah from Sawhorse Revolution, and I thought we'd start by having them introduce themselves, um, maybe say their titles, and what they do for Sawhorse. Cool. I'm Micah, but not Sarah, from Sawhorse Revolution. Um, I'm newly dubbed operations director, um, and that consists of all kinds of boring things like grant writing and getting insurance policies to also some of the program facilitation and sort of high-level planning that we're Sarah and I and a few other folks are involved with. Is that good at it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's great. And I'm Sarah, not Micah, and I'm our program director at Sawhorse, so I am in charge of a lot of running the programs more and more. We're a growing organization, so our jobs keep developing and shifting in focus. Um, But I work a lot on the programs and partnerships. well as we, we share the high-level planning and I also work on our PR and branding implementation. Um, so a lot of the web presence that we have, I manage. Okay, and for our listeners who don't know what Sawhorse Revolution is, what is Sawhorse? <laughs> uh, Sawhorse Revolution is a youth carpentry program. So we bring diverse high schoolers, mostly from South Seattle, but occasionally from other places, uh, West Seattle, and then, you know, friends of friends, um, and engage them in community building projects. And it's bigger than like your average shop class project, a cutting board or a box. We build actual structures with the high schoolers. Um, and to do this, we work with professional um, builders, professional architects, and a really amazing crew of volunteers as well to make these programs happen. Mm-hmm. She got it right. <laughs> she, she's the one that does the branding. So she does <laughs> Yeah, and one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you is um, because of your most recent project, The Invisible City. Impossible City. Impossible City. How did they do it again? Damn. Calvino. Calvino. It's out entirely. Um, (laughs) That's strike one. Did I get three? Okay, The Impossible City. (laughs) Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that project was? Yeah, it's actually pretty much still going. We we ran this online campaign, or Sarah mostly did, to raise funds for a series of structures to be built for the Nicholsville homeless community over on uh, Dearborn currently, though who knows what the future holds. Um, And it's basically a collaboration between us and Nicholsville and a whole lot of other partners and our high school students where we're exploring the possibilities of creating small structures, some portable, some uh, maybe collapsible that will provide temporary housing for folks going coming off the streets into Nicholsville 
for people to pass through Nicholsville into more permanent housing. Um, and it's sort of this, what we're seeing as a really cool opportunity for the students we're working with to learn some really valuable skills, get their hands dirty, working with the community, see what some group process and creativity can provide for a really pressing local need, which is the fact that there are more homeless people in Seattle than we really know what to do about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things um, that I found interesting in watching the Kickstarter video that you put together for the project is um, you talked directly about how you had no illusions that you were going to be able to solve homelessness, but that this was a very constructive way in which you could actually make a, a difference. Um, and it seems like Sawhorse has been always involved in, in sort of socially conscious building, and this has been a, an evolution. Can you talk about some of the other projects that you've done and sort of how you see Sawhorse Revolution interacting with the larger community? Yeah. Um, for most, for all of our in-city projects, we also do a summer camp um, at a rural farm up north in Arlington, Washington. Uh, but in our in-city programs, which currently there are four large in-city per year, that number is growing uh, over the next few years, most likely. Um, but those programs are always in collaboration with a local organization. So in the past, that's been like a pea patch. So the Judkins pea patch, we've built two structures for them. Um, and then Seattle Children's Play Garden, Green Plate Special, um, they're all fairly outdoors sort of nice community spots who need base who needed when we built for them some basic infrastructure um, and on the on the face of it that's the partnership on a on a deeper level in terms of well what is the community impact yeah we are upgrading somebody's infrastructure in a small way as best we can um, we're not you know capable of building a whole well we would be capable but it's it sort of doesn't fit into a 40-hour education program of building a whole new structure but the students get a really strong sense of community engagement and so they're going someplace they've probably never been before or only just walked by um, and really engaging and learning about it and working and contributing. So part of the, the sense of community engagement that we have is actually getting students to volunteer to build something awesome. Um, so they, they have a lot of pride for their work and they see this tangible difference that they're making. Um, over time for a local organization. And I think a really important aspect of that that it's easy to forget about is that we, you know, we're based, like Sarah said earlier, in sort of south and central Seattle, which is where most of our programs are located. And that's because that's where the, our students come from, from high schools in the south end. And we really try and source projects that are serving that community and that are close to students both for transportation issues as well as for just to see, just to give them an opportunity to see what their work can do um, to impact their immediate surroundings and neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That's that's a great point. Uh, Mike is leading a program right now at the Columbia City Interagency Academy. Southeast yeah. Interagency. Thanks. In Columbia City. Okay, <laughs> Southeast Interagency. Right. Yeah. Straight through you, there we go. Yeah. I feel like better now, uh, invisible. <laughs> So Southeast Interagency Academy in Columbia City and simple projects, they're working with the vocational technology class. This is just a good example of it, I think. But the students are building these big, awesome planter boxes and some uh, infrastructure for the garden that's going literally like 
100, 200 feet away from where it was built. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the students have been really excited that this is, you know, they do it. And then other people, like their peers and their friends, walk by and they see, like, oh my gosh, you guys made this. Mm -hmm. And it's so direct, it's so nearby. But, you know, I bet a month ago they wouldn't have said, oh yeah, well, I can, you know, I did this in this community. They didn't have that exact connection to, mm -hmm. to where they are. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any more to say about that. But. Yeah, totally. It, every every program day we end up, so there are all of these raised beds there, and we're basically using offcuts from this other project we did to make these sort of new toppers for those beds because what they had was old and rotten and just trying to give something a little nicer. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's simple. It's sort of like straight cuts, screw guns, chop saw, and you know basic tools and everything but it's stuff that these kids have never touched never even mm -hmm. imagined that you can use this thing called a rotor hammer to make holes in concrete and then put things into that concrete to hold other stuff together it's so it's like pretty cool for them to see that and then at the end of every day you know not even i'll even forget to do this intentionally but the kids will step back and say hey this is looking really cool Mm -hmm. Or teachers will come through at the end of the school day and say, like, you guys are doing really great work. And it's, it, I, I, I don't know if I could claim that Sawhorse has ever, like, you know, been the sole, the source of inspiration for someone's, like, you know, big life drive or urge or something like that. But in, in a really small way, I think that sort of direct feedback is mm -hmm. super important and, um, yeah, we're just sort of like, it's cool to see where this kind of stuff can go. Mm -hmm. And it's such an antidote to abstraction. And mm -hmm. I feel like giving people the opportunity to actually see something from start to finish and then see it go on to have a second life when they're done, it's just, it's absolutely empowering and mm -hmm. inspiring. And that's one of the reasons that um, I thought the Sawhorse Revolution would be a really good fit for the Project Stream um, current topic of, of monuments is that often you have a monument that's something static where you make something and it sits there and it's sort of a, an end unto itself mm -hmm. where there's not really a life after it's been created but with the projects that you're choosing to do um, the monument is kind of the, the first jumping off point and then it goes on to have these lives within the community um, and mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really awesome um, yeah one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was um, a few years ago, Brendan Kiley wrote a really great article on The Stranger about your work. And one of the points that he brought up is that um, arts education and technical, uh, what was the acronym he used? It was, I wrote it down. Is it STEM? STEAM? No, it was CTE, Craft oh, Trades yeah, Education. Yeah. Career. I would have said career technical education, craft trades, CTE. Oh, career technical education, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there it is. Um, and there was a quote in there saying, um, if they don't test it, we don't teach it. And I was wondering if you could speak more to the parallels between the loss of creative education and the loss of craft education. It, it's hard to... We did a lot of research into it um, that Brendan kind of picked up on after, like right when we moved into the city, like when we basically became Sawhorse Revolution. Um, and Time out for a brief history. We started with these summer camps up <laughs> in Arlington that were really cool. We built gigantic, sweet stuff like tree houses mm -hmm. and bridges and stuff. And because those were so cool and successful, this is for anybody who maybe hasn't heard yeah. of, um, we decided to 
do it and to try and do it year-round and to try and do it closer to our homes and to where our students work, which is here in the city. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's good context. Yes. So when we decided to come into the city, we did some research about the loss of shop class, partially just to know and out of curiosity for that same question. Um, and most of the shop classes disappeared in the last 10 to 20 years through a number of different reasons, partially standardized testing, partially a history of sort of tracking. So um, the trades got a really bad rap because teachers who were more racist or biased in some way would send kids who acted up or who they didn't like towards a vocational track instead of tracking them to college. So they, it had this really bad sort of rap among administration who'd grown up when that was happening, um, which, I mean, there's so many factors that contribute to it. Also, the overarching emphasis on just college preparedness, um, which, and those things, I honestly don't 100% understand why something that vast in our zeitgeist has gone on. I mean, there is a dearth of, uh, you know, what we're trying to do, essentially, which is just a very um, fun and engaging introduction to the trades. We're not trying to push anybody to become, you know, a builder, though we do support people if they're interested in that. We're not trying to push people to go to college. We're really trying to meet uh, our people where they are and work on projects together. Um, and that is a, a focus on creativity. It's, it's hard for me to say exactly what, how we're related to something that is a huge, just trend in the country. Um, I can say where we are, like I was talking about a bit about shop class. I don't know. Well, yeah. I think, I mean, I was thinking of it in, in sort of like really almost like boringly simple terms too, which is like, yeah, there, there has been for whatever reason, and we could spend a long time trying to figure that out. Uh, this, like you say, this, this, uh, this falling out there there are fewer opportunities in creative and hands-on learning and the part of it is this sort of like big huge socially embedded thing where society has decided that the, the the jobs that use your hands and get you dirty are less desirable than the jobs where you sit behind a computer and get back problems or whatever <laughs> but like i mean not that you don't get back problems doing construction or something, but... Um, but different back problems. Yeah, At least you exactly. get more fun problems. Yeah. But it also... Along the way. I mean, I think some of the material, uh, you know, not not trying to provide any sort of a huge, you know, systemic social understanding, but some of the material facts of it are that schools are underfunded and shop programs cost a lot. They're equipment intensive, they require, if you're gonna pack as many kids into a shop program, it gets, you know, the liability is higher, you probably need more people to watch those kids, students, um, while they're operating power tools and things like that. And, and I think probably the same, and I don't really know this, but, you know, arts, um, theater, these are all things that, you know, you need materials to build sets, and, you know, what, partially it's this sort of material question of what does it take to actually do these programs in tight budgets, and especially when funding is tied to testing, but then I think it's also like, what do they produce mm -hmm. in this sort of really weird, um, 
you know, uh, nominalized, quantified sense. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you do a really awesome school play, does that, you know, how can, does that, how does that improve your test scores? I have no idea. I mean, like, I'm not yeah. really interested enough to ever try and figure mm-hmm. out to quantify why that's important. But I think there are a lot of people, especially in Seattle, I mean, look at it, but that have this innate sense that that should be there. You know, a lot of educators, a lot of teachers, a lot of just young people, a lot of old people. I think it's very common for people to understand that there's something missing mm-hmm. in, in uh, this sort of typical mode of education. But because of those material concerns, the need for quantification, the need for you know, packing as many kids into spaces as possible, it just becomes, I guess, difficult administratively mm-hmm. to to have public schools doing that yeah. kind of stuff. Which is, I mean, <clears throat> our whole our whole deal is we're trying to make a go of it as a as a nonprofit that gets its funding um, and can enhance or or build off of what is being taught in schools mm-hmm. and provide some some you know, direct hands-on counterbalance to the more academic class-based stuff. Just a, two extra thoughts to go along with that. Um, when I interviewed Shep Siegel, who was the head of CTE in Seattle Public Schools for the last 16 years up to, I think, 2012, um, when he moved on to something called Project Lead the Way. And there's also just historical accident that goes into it, where in Seattle, I guess, the schools are sort of democratically run, so the teachers actually vote on certain things, um, and there ends up being this accidental and totally not malicious, but it just kind of has an impact on the small guys. Mm-hmm. Um, a tyranny, he, called, he didn't call it tyranny of the majority, but it's just like a lot of, lo- there's a ton of language arts teachers, and there's only like one or two arts teacher, one shop teacher, one theater teacher, um, so when it comes down to a vote, which a lot of things do, the little tiny, um, voices in the schools don't have, they need to have a lot of like speaking power and sway. Um, so that was just like a tiny odd detail where, um, you know, a very well-intentioned and probably, you know, in many ways beneficial ways the schools are organized leads to accidental sort of like cutting of funding for some of the smaller programs just because like everybody like Mike is saying everybody's strapped for money Mm -hmm. um and everybody is kind of like working with a very limited budget so how do you assess that in the schools yeah and you probably don't realize at the time what's being lost and that's sort of the the sad (laughs) lag of it where Mike I totally agree with what you said that there seems to be this sense that something's missing Mm -hmm. um but our our educational system has sort of become too crippled to be able to address the changes because while I think we're starting to shift into valuing these more concrete skill sets, it like you said, it's hard to rebuild a shop. It's hard mm-hmm. to find people who have that knowledge base and it, it's sort of, it's obsolesced and there's not an easy way to bring it back. Yeah. And we're sort of experimenting with what that would look like, you know, mm-hmm. different, different approaches to it. We're, one of the things that from the very beginning we thought um, defined what Sawhorse is, is that like Sarah said, these are these are large projects that require multiple people to work on them. So it's sort of like inherently team-based, and, and you have to confront your peer, your mentor, um, in this very collaborative, interactive way. Um, and that's one thing that we've, you know, I, I think that springs out of our own personal experiences. That that's, like, difficult. It's a lifelong learning sort of skill. Um, 
and really inspiring when you do like hit the rhythm or something mm -hmm. like that and you're just sort of like not communicating but you're communicating like on the same page you somehow know what's coming up next you know how to look out for other people you fall into these sort of cool cool rhythms I don't know how I got there but I want to say <laughs> I want to say one other thing about the it, what what we know of the state of uh, public school specifically trades I guess shop auto shop wood shop education is pretty awesome and inspiring too it's just not enough basically mm -hmm. so like we we work pretty mm -hmm. closely with a few of the different uh shop teachers that are still operating in uh chief south west seattle franklin high schools as well as some some folks who are doing similar stuff with the interagency uh, schools which is the sort of like alternative school system and they're like they're great they're incredible advocates they're smart they really care a lot about their kids and they put a lot of work outside of school hours to make their programs possible. So it's like, yeah, it's just sort of like a tough situation where those, mm -hmm. you have to really fight to keep those programs alive. And even at their current state, they don't, there's just not enough of it for really for the number of people that, that can benefit from this kind of learning. Yeah. And it's interesting how in the absence of enough resources from within the public sector, all these, you know, it's nonprofits arise to fill the gaps. And it's kind of a, it makes the ecology of the city, I think, really fascinating to look at. And I had this experience the other day. This is a, a bit of a tangent, but um, I was helping out doing some set painting for um, 12th Avenue Arts. And I was looking around and there were five ladders in the space and all of them, you know, had written in Sharpie the name of a different shop, none of which were theirs, you know? So it's like, you've got Cornish, you've got Velocity, you have all these people where it's like no one organization actually has the resources to furnish their own supplies. Yeah. But it's like this strange thing where everyone, it's like an underground economy uh -huh. where <laughs> everyone has keys to someone's shop and knows what you can borrow when. And so while I wish that there was more funding, it's also interesting to see what happens when it's just not there. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but going back to, I want to talk more about the impossible city. I got it right this time. Um, and hear a little bit more about what that process was like, um, just going into Nicholsville and talking to the residents and tell me more about how that went down on the ground or how it is going down. Yeah. So yeah, we, our goal just in general, um, and also because we care about Nicholsville and have started to know them fairly well as people are coming and going, um, is to stay in really close contact with them through all steps of it and just really make sure that it's a client-centered design process. Um, and so how that's looked so far with our programs, um, we it's really important, as we were talking about before, with the community engagement, the feeling of community, community engagement for the students, that they actually understand that they're contributing to a homeless camp and that this is really an opportunity for them in many ways to learn about homelessness. So our approach so far and I think is going to continue to go along these lines with as it develops is to have the students actually um, go to Nicholsville and interview residents about their lives and what they need and the material conditions of that. So the design program we did last fall uh, was a collaboration with Olsen Kundig Architects who provided design mentorship for our students. And the students had a whole um, introduction to homelessness from a woman who is a licensed therapist and employee at Mary's Place. Mm -hmm. They learned about homelessness um, and then 
developed a list of questions and we talked about they would go there. We did a volunteer day, we had lunch at Nicholsville, and then they interviewed a panel of residents um, just with their questions about their lives. And it's everything from, you know, what are you, what are you, what are your biggest challenges about living here? Where do you live? What's it like? Can you describe it? Um, to, you know, what do you think about windows? And is there a fire regulation? Um, so they went, went through all of those questions and then came, we came back as a design group and discussed them as the design constraints. You know, what, it, what, it, what are the lives of these people as you heard them? What's the site like? You know, oh, it's really muddy. Oh, wow, mud is a big challenge. Um, so, so the process in terms of working with Nicholsville and going there is really amazing, especially with the students, um, to actually have them go and take the responsibility for talking with the residents. And I think all of our programs are going to work with that in some way or another, at least with a site visit, mm -hmm. to see... Um, to see what the camp is like and where they're building. Because it's it's going back to that tangible thing like you were talking about and Micah too. Uh, you really have, you're building for a site. So we don't build it at Nicholsville, we build them off site mm -hmm. um, for a, a bunch of different reasons, shop access, power, and then just you know not disturbing the residents. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really having them understand the site and understand the constraints and understand the lives of the residents, you know, to some extent. It's not a, isn't, it's hard to get there a hundred percent, but you know, just getting at that, um, it's, it's amazing. And you hear the students talking about it afterwards and they're like, Oh, it's so eye opening. It's, it's really, I've never done that before. They never had a reason to stop and talk at a homeless encampment. So we're really giving them an opportunity to do that. Uh, I think it's really cool. It, it was a dream pet project and somebody can pick this up and do it for me is that in the process, through talking with a lot of the residents there, we've uh, we've come to know a lot of them as really creative individuals with cool dreams and creative lives, um, which is just not, I think, the first thing you think about when you think of homelessness. You don't mm -hmm. think of people sitting around making sketches of the houses they wish they could live in, you know. Um, but just through the, I guess, almost over a year now of stopping by there, talking with folks, going to community meetings and things, you know, people begin to recognize us and say, hey, you know, I've got this idea, or do you want to see this, like, cool custom bag made out of leather I found and bicycle rivets and stuff like that? And like, yes, I would like to see that. And it's, this is just a total tangent, but uh, if, if sort of the topic is creativity, um, and, and how Sawhorse is involved with creativity. It's, it's really interesting. This has been a way for, at least me personally, to get at least a glimpse at the creative lives of, of people whose creative imaginations pretty much don't get heard or seen very much. Um, and they're rich and cool, and that's been a fun process. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people there who have been really interested in what we're up to in terms of the structures and in providing their thoughts, their feedback, their opinions, their desires for these things. So that's one of the reasons that it's such a cool project to be um, involved with, embarking upon, is that um, we're trying to do these so that they're, you know, all different. They're, they all express either the group of students that... Um, is building it or the designers that were 
involving in the process or the collaboration between the students and the residents there, mm -hmm. as well as in incorporating, I mean, this is a new sort of structure that we're trying to learn how to build. And just like we don't have any pretensions of knowing how to end homelessness, we don't have any pretensions of knowing what the right thing for this really difficult situation is. So we're trying to sort of take it one at a time and really see how we can improve on things, what what amenities we can include, what what tweaks we can make to the structure, to the features that really make it uh, comfortable, mm -hmm. to nice, something you're something you're happy to to be in. Is I think sort of the goal. So it's it's just fun having you know, iteration, creativity, um, and conversation be so integral to what we're doing. Yeah, and I imagine that it's it's empowering, you know, Sarah, you touched on this a bit, for the students to be able to have these conversations with the residents, but also just to give the residents, um, you know, who are, are without their own homes, to have the ability to actually give their input about how they'd want to live, mm -hmm. I imagine is something that um, that is pretty rich for them. Yeah. I hope, We've... yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. It's, it, it, again, like just not wanting to speak for them, but mm -hmm. one of our goals is to treat them with a lot of respect and, you know, hopefully that actually reads to them. Hopefully that actually translates, mm -hmm. basically. Um, but my sense with that is honestly that we've only just begun to scratch the surface too. Mm -hmm. um, it, for a number of different reasons, but... Because, I mean, it would be so cool to have uh, more arts pro programs or projects based in homeless communities and things like that. And it's just not quite our focus at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it is really cool to be able to involve them, um, them the Nicholsville residents, in, in these conversations. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just sort of like peering through a small window is, is my sense of it. Mm -hmm. Not in a creepy way. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I feel like that there is a lot of potential to um, to explore that even more mm -hmm. and, and to engage even deeper with with uh, these people's creative lives. Mm -hmm. And it's great that in the very bones of the project you're demonstrating that creativity and design don't have to be just things that are only available to, you know, the elite and the privileged. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's so wonderful about what Selhurst Revolution does is that it, it makes the idea of building accessible to anyone without this sort of, I don't know, there's like strange romanticization <laughs> that happens at the same time as we're losing these trade skills. Like mm -hmm. there's this sort of, you know, oh, the builder that people mm -hmm. put on the pedestal and yeah. it's, um, one of the things that I, I really liked when I was looking at your, um, I think it was your manifesto, or what's the document on your website where mission statement, something of the sort. Oh, yeah, I, I think I put the, the manifesto on yeah, the website, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, but there was a quote in there that I really loved where you said, one must submit to reality when learning to play an instrument, to speak a language, or to build a house. And it, it seemed like that's really at the core of so much of what you do is this like very lyrical pragmatism. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, 
Did you read? I don't think our literary journal's online. We should have brought one for you. Maybe. You know, actually, I've read it in the bathroom at Smoke Farm. Oh, okay. Which is <laughs> 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 actually, I remember sitting there picking it up and being like, oh, those guys yeah. are what do you know? <laughs> doing a literary journal now. Great. Uh, <laughs> we did it once. We'd love to do another, but yeah. <laughs> one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, our founder and executive director, Adam, wrote an awesome article about the sort of like, just how to find interest in almost doing anything in screwing in drywall screws on, you know, he said it's thousands of screws and you have one day and you have your arm and your screw gun. Um, and how do you engage with that totally seemingly boring activity? Like it could just be so boring to you. Um, but how do you find like the ability to be interested with whatever you have in front of you? Um, and the, yeah, it's a huge, goal of Sawhorse, and again, it's like we're only just at the very tip of what we possibly could do with that goal um, in terms of what we actually do, but it's that you don't have to be, you know, a famous sculptor to put something meaningful into your community, and in fact, you don't have to do anything like, like, even just like a little alteration to your school or a little alteration in your home. Mika has a great story of students patching, then learning to or teaching students to patch a wall, and then the students patch the wall in their house that their, you know, their brother had punched a hole in the wall, and they wanted to fix it. And just that that itself is a really creative, interesting, meaningful act. Um, and then it doesn't have to, you know, have this narrative of fame or this narrative of anything. It's just this is this is your life and your activity, and um, you ha you can be interested in it, and you can take some care and pride and, you know, interest in the challenge and the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think I think you're right in identifying the sort of barriers to entry in, into, in this case specifically building, but into any sort of like art or creativity. It's intimidating mm -hmm. because because you do at some point, especially when your your product is tangible, mm -hmm. um, you do have to see how that does or doesn't stack up to yeah. what the professionals did over there or what you had in your mind or what you know, your friends say is feedback or something like that. Um, and I think a, a big sort of the, one of the big projects or themes with Sawhorse is just trying to break through the fear or the, the, the tentativeness around um, just picking things up and doing them. Mm -hmm. um, seeing that you can change, you can design, it's okay to imagine this space as different, better, um, and to begin to make moves in that direction, even if it's not going to turn out perfect every time. Mm -hmm. um, because no, I mean, that's the craziest thing, is like no, no, if there's this mythic builder who just sort of like <laughs> has these wonderful skills, any builder I've ever met, and I think you know, when anybody's really thinking about it, knows that they've gone through thousands and thousands of hours of trying things, screwing things up, <laughs> flying by the seat of their pants, faking it, asking questions, like, it, and somehow that, I don't know, it's not knowing, I guess, the, it, not knowing, but also not uh, giving in to, to the fear associated with that, um, that to me is one of the most important things to cultivate among our students as well as among our organization in general. Mm -hmm. Like this Nicholsville thing or the, the impossible city has been, I've been 
it scared the shit out of me from day one. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know if we can do this. I really like the idea, but this makes me so uncomfortable in a lot of ways. I mean, if you're talking, you know, liability, funding, <laughs> how long is Nicholsville going to survive? Like, is it the wrong side of the city politics? There's so much about this that we didn't and still don't really know how it'll play out in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, here we are <laughs> over, about a year into uh, actually building these things. Um, We've only built a couple. It's a slow process, but mm-hmm. um, and it's going really well. And I feel like we're really getting a better sense of what it takes to do this well. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to feel like it's a it's a viable, ongoing um, thing with lots of room for creativity, even as we learn how to do the overall project better. You know, fine tuning things without totally determining them. Mm-hmm. That's how it feels. Man, that's wonderful. Out of curiosity, um, what have been some of the, the unexpected challenges that have come up in this project? I mean, one of the, one of the weirdest things, I, and one of the challenges I've got is, like, how do you tell people what you're doing? You, you mentioned this about it's difficult with Project Room. It's like mm-hmm. when it's not, when the whole point isn't for everything always to be clean and perfect, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to put that into <laughs> a cohesive sentence that tells someone what you're doing. And so if yeah. I say... You know, the easy answer for what is what are you, what project are you working on or what is the impossible city? It's like, oh, it's working with <laughs> high school kids and professionals to build houses for homeless folks. Mm-hmm. And that, depending on who you're talking to, can sound like uh, <laughs> it can sound like, you know, mission work. It can sound like shoddy carpentry. It can sound like it can sound like uh, an ill-conceived sort of like social revolution or something like this. I mean, it can sound all kinds of ways, and you just don't know how to. And I think Sarah's put a lot of work into this: how to speak carefully about it, get the point across, not be too neurotic about saying the wrong thing, mm-hmm. but but then respond to people's reactions, responses to, to mm-hmm. however it is you blurted it out. So I guess the sort of, uh, the communication is just an ongoing, crazy, difficult thing. How do you accurately describe what you're doing and help people understand it, um, without actually being able to make everybody a part of it, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, it's so crucial to have a, a good elevator speech. Yeah. Obviously there's more going on within Nicholsville impossible city thing in the near future we're also constantly especially in this past year just like constantly receiving really cool uh, proposals or suggestions for partnerships and things like that so there's there's always an unknown of uh, what's out there what's what's coming our way that we can't predict Mm -hmm. which we are pretty you know we're far from being able to uh, take on most of the things that do come our way, but we definitely consider each one pretty carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's fun, and we, I think, like it that way and want to keep it open. But then, like, we're working with interagency high school now, and just, like, personally, I'm feeling like that is uh, um, inspiring. It's a challenging place to be. It's It's requires a different level of building, a different sort of approach to teaching kids from often traumatic or really challenged backgrounds mm-hmm. um, 
that their their time, their attention, their bodies, their hands, their brains are sort of like worth it and contributing. It's it's gives an opportunity for a slightly different approach, and we're sort of considering what what that would look like as a larger or more continuing, ongoing effort of Sahor, stuff like that. So, um, so it's like there, there's a lot, and there's, there's more really currently about like where in the next year we've, we've, we're in the midst of scheduling the meeting yeah. in which we're going to talk about these things. So I don't have a good answer in terms of yeah. where we are going to allocate what resources we have, but it's sort of like seeing what opportunities there are. Mm-hmm. What, seeing what can unfold and, and what's around in Seattle um, and just sort of like sitting together until we come up with a plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the way you're talking about it is really helpful just because like even just a little tiny, dis- it, it's, I mean, there's like a, a very like pragmatic sort of detailed decision just involves a ton of back work and where are we going and what are we doing and why and when and money and like basically, yeah. So any like, that's real-time strategic planning, mm-hmm. where you're just, like, really every every step forward involves a ton of, of thought and care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no's are just as well thought out as yeses, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that approach. Might have to steal that for the project room. <laughs> it's, it's a yeah. pain in the butt, but it works really well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely not the, like, fast growth, sort of, like, bada-boom, bada-bing model, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we're, it's the same ethos as the Impossible City, where... You know, you're not trying to come up with a solution and you're not trying to produce a million of the same house or even a hundred or even 50 or even two. Mm -hmm. Um, But you really every time like evaluate and you think it through and you understand what went well or what didn't about last time and you get feedback from others and you decide if you like their feedback, you know, or if you (laughs) agree and but you think about it and then you like adjust, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you do something different. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really similar to that where it's super process oriented and, Mm -hmm. and the product is, you know, okay, cool. We got the product. Like then eventually after a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like a very interactive human way of doing things, which I don't know. It almost makes me think about like Quaker meetings. (laughs) 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 We don't, we don't act until. (laughs) We swear more than Quakers. Actually, I have no idea how much Quaker school. Yeah. Sorry for uh, typecasting you Quakers. Um, I find this is funny. I find myself talking to your phone. I know. It's really strange. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I feel like we should mention that we have this like jury rigged system where we're recording this on my phone, which is on a stool propped up on a pillow and some dictionaries. So it's like the, it's the elephant in the room that we're all trying to not stare at. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Great. Do you, do you guys feel like there's anything that we haven't touched on that you would want to talk about or any burning questions you wish I asked you that I didn't? Can I give a, can I give a shout out? Yeah. Uh, one of the programs we're thinking of is uh, a girls program. So that's really exciting. And it's going to be an interesting one, you know, if we get the funding for it to handle because it's sort of like people are like, oh, well, why just girls? And it's another one of the experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's going to be really cool. So that's, that's one thing that we're kind of thinking about for the future. And then also a construction management themed tiny house building program where we've got a cool partnership with BN Builders um, and they're going to, so it's like, it's like a design, like the design program was really cool because it gave the students a ton of agency in, in the whole process and like a really like kind of like staged introduction. So instead of just like blast your building, it's like, 
oh, here's like a technique professionals use to think about building, you know, or the design or understanding what you're doing. And then you move into the field of action. So mm -hmm. that's going to be an interesting partnership as well. And it's, it's just without using design, but still like, how do you, how do you like think about this process from like a slightly different angle, you know, or what if you, you know, didn't just like focus, you know, yeah, there's plenty of time to focus on your screw gun skills, but before that, just a little bit of like looking at like, oh, wow, there's this other layer of skill going on, which is how to create a workflow or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, those are two things I'm pretty excited about yeah. coming up really soon. Can I ask an interview, can I, can I turn into the interviewer for a sec? Sure. Yeah. Sarah, you, you gave a teaser about why you think the women's program is going to be really cool, mm -hmm. but but you didn't actually get to say why. So how come? How come? I mean, I think I totally think it's true. Oh. But I want to hear you say. Uh, it's just going to be a little field of like space where girls can <laughs> explore badassery and kind of get some hopefully cool experience being able to talk about their next steps into the world because the the goal I think is going to be to work with with young young women who are thinking of going into some kind of stem field mm -hmm. so science technology engineering and math uh so yeah just having some like awesome space to really like at a really important time in your life think about and talk about and practice communication aspects of communication you know, aspects of, like, strength building and just kind of do that in a really private uh, girls group. Oh, that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as myself, as a woman who's always been drawn to more masculine fields, like, the, this, just basically giving women a space in which their interests are normalized, mm -hmm. in which their gender doesn't stand out, I think will open a lot of doors just to conversation and sort of a different way to to sort of be able to look at gender without it being the first thing that's seen. So... That'll, yeah, I'm excited about that. See what you do with it. <laughs> we had one girl, we did a little focus group just because I was like, I don't know what it's like to be a high school girl these days. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one of the girls was like, she just said something really nice. She's like, you know, I just don't get along with some of the other girls because they're interested in like painting their nails and I'm the kind of girl who likes hammers. And I, so I have a hard time <laughs> making friends sometimes. <laughs> it was just like, that is that in itself is like a great reason to provide more spaces for, you know, many, many types of interests and people. And we're lucky we got a fun niche, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I mean, just, just to add another example is I've had... I've worked with a number of students who are the girls that like to paint their nails or whatever. Oh, yeah. And, and didn't know that they liked hammering. Mm -hmm. And turns out hammering is satisfying for a lot of people, <laughs> even if they don't expect it or aren't, you know, aren't exposed to it. So it's, it'll also be really interesting, I think, to, to I mean, just in general with Sawhorse, mm -hmm. to see what happens when people are exposed to things they didn't have access to before mm -hmm. um, in a supportive way. But... But with this group also, I think it may be really interesting to get it's sort of an intense mix of, of, you know, different types of femininity, if that's what it is or something. Yeah, when you can break down the notion that painted nails and hammers have to be mutually exclusive. Totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Oh, that's going to be fun. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to meet today. Thank you so much yeah. for having us.